To coin a phrase, podcasts are a dime a dozen. And that is a terrible, terrible pun, no matter which way you look at it. You know what? Everyone else is doing one. Everyone else seems to be spending their COVID time making podcasts and making the world a better place by having people stick things in their ears and listen to things that they would not normally get involved in. Well, why can't I do that as well? So here we go. I'm going to give it a crack. You could be bored crapless, but you know what? At least it passes the time for me. This is my poor man's version of a podcast. Welcome to Thoughts from the Metal Cavern. G'day there. When I decided to have another go at doing a podcast, which I have done in the past, I thought most of my ranting, if not all, would be cricket related. And to be honest, it probably will be. And yet, here we are, episode one, and this one's all about rugby league. Is it because Peter Volandis has so inspired the nation that all anyone is thinking about and watching is rugby league? Eh, probably not. But in amongst the awful thrashings and the boring contests have been some simply fantastic matches. But what I wanted to discuss today is the coaching merry-go-round that we're seeing at the moment and how the pressure on coaches at three particular clubs is impacting on the competition as a whole. So let's go forward. Has anyone else noticed this going on? The first basket case club of the weekend was everyone's favourite horse to flog, the St George Illawarra Dragons. On this weekend's game, they amazingly shot out to a 10-0 lead within the first 10 minutes of their match against Canterbury, and for all money it looked as though they were going to go on to another win to back up last week's effort against Manly. By half-time, they were behind again, and with 13 minutes to go, they had been pretty much dominated by a Canterbury team who has faced enough of its own criticisms in recent times, and we'll get to that shortly. Somehow, through some possession and Bulldogs' bungles and strange decisions in play, the Dragons escaped with a last-minute try that gave them a 28-22 victory. If we go back a bit to the uh, start of June, the Dragons held a press conference after their loss by 22-2 to, ironically, Canterbury. And before that, the week before, was the 18-0 loss to the Warriors. Those two games had meant after COVID, they had lost their first four games of the season. And for all intents and purposes, it was going to be the end of Paul McGregor's career as coach. Since that press conference, which for some reason, some may say, Paul McGregor was uh, lauded, not lauded perhaps, but certainly was uh, installed by the board as the man that they favoured to lead the club further on. They've had a 30-16 to 16 win over the Sharks, a 20-8 to 8 win over the Titans, then consecutive losses, however, to last year's grand finalists, the Roosters and the Raiders. Then they hit back with a 34-4 win over Manly, culminating in their victory 28-22 over Canterbury this weekend. With four wins, that puts them one win outside the top eight in a season that is going to uh, not have too many contenders, one would think. Has it been convincing? Not completely. But it has, con- has converted the chances to win games 
uh, has converted the chances to win games into actually winning games. Yes, that's more or less what I was trying to say. Something that they certainly should have done in the first two rounds, but didn't. What has happened since the press conference when it was more or less suggested that the board was keeping faith with coach Paul McGregor for the time being? Did this statement magically kickstart the Dragons players and staff into a winning frame of mind? Was it the mind game that was needed? Or did something else happen following that press conference? It isn't too hard to connect the dots, and even if the following isn't completely accurate, it sure has the appearance of being close to the mark. Matt Dufty has been involved in 50% of the Dragons' tries this season. Yet before the Dragons board was forced to come out and proclaim their belief in McGregor as coach, Dufty wasn't even assured of his place in the 17. He was one of several players that were on the cusp of leaving the club altogether. However, unlike Isaac Luke and James Graham, who were granted their application to move on, Dufty was retained and then amazingly installed as fullback, a position many fans have felt has been his for the taking for the last 18 months. And boom! Tries and tries assists are plenty. This hasn't been the only change in the setup. Corey Norman went from fullback to 5'8. Cam McInnes went from hooker to lock. Ben Hunt went from halfback to hooker. Zach Lomax began to make an impression in the centres. Does anyone seriously not believe that Shane Flanagan is pseudo running this team? The video before the game on the weekend was fairly instructive. From inside the sheds, Mary gave a talk while sitting down in front of his players, and then he moved away. As soon as he had done this, Flanagan stood up and began to move between players, offering individual words to the players. In the box, they sit close together and they talk constantly. Flanagan always seems the more vocal and more demonstrative. Whether or not you believe Flanagan should be allowed to coach again after the transgressions that happened at Cronulla under his watch, it's fair to say that he finds a way to get the best out of his players. He may not have the plaque on his desk that says head coach, but he sure is acting like he is the one in charge. And the improvement and changes at the Dragons in recent weeks suggests he is the one making the moves. Basket case number two for this weekend is, of course, the Bulldogs. And not just for the season that is unfolding around them on the field, but for the way they are looking to go forward and solve the problems they find themselves in. Dean Pay got the flick last week as head coach, and Steve Georgialis took over as interim coach for the match against the Dragons. Take away the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes of the match, and the Bulldogs were by far the better team and probably deserved to win. As with all first matches with a new coach, the question is asked, was it the influence of the new coach, or did the players realise that now that the main coach had gone, the spotlight and responsibility was now firmly on them? And shouldn't that be the case in the first place? Why is the coach always so disposable, but the players get protected? If it's just about contracts, well if you break one contract, why can't you just break several? I've never really been able to understand why the coach cops so much flack in these situations. A few years ago, George Arles performed the same role of caretaker at the Panthers, back in 2011, and did a reasonable job before not getting the full-time gig. 
Now it is the current Panthers assistant who looks like he'll get the job at Canterbury. And that raises a number of questions, not only about the coaching prowess of several coaches in the NRL related to this situation, but also the culture of those clubs involved. Trent Barrett, current Panthers assistant coach, and from all media reports likely to be appointed the next Canterbury coach, had a crack at the number one job at Manly, a club renowned for almost always only appointing coaches who had played for the club in their playing days. Graham Lowe was the outstanding exception to this rule. Three seasons from 2016 to 2018 was what Barrett was given. Looking from the outside, it looked like a terrible fit between Barrett and the club, and various stories emerged of disagreements between the coach and his players and board members. Whether they were substantiated or whether blame could be accorded, from a bystander's perspective, it looked as though the club and its culture turned against the outsider looking to put his own stamp on the club, and it turned out nastily. He was replaced by former coach Des Hasler, who had left after winning two premierships with Manly to take over at the Bulldogs in the hope he could bring that winning culture back with him. On his return to the Sea Eagles, he appears to have restored that culture to the club via his coaching methods. He and Manly looked to be a good fit. Whether that was the case at the Bulldogs is another story. He took the team to two grand final appearances, losing to Melbourne and South respectively. Despite this success, his final two years in charge were controversial over his decisions in regards to player retention and recruitment. Most thought he would be moved on earlier, but against all popular thought, he was re-signed to a multi-year deal. At the end of his tenure, when the club actually had to come to a settlement over the remainder of his contract, the hardcore supporters more or less believed that Hasler had coached outside of the culture of the club, one that in days gone by had been known as the family club, and that this had been destroyed by Hasler. Those words again, club culture, and an outsider eventually being cast out despite the initial success he had brought. So now Canterbury, having had one coach from outside of their comfort zone moved on, replaced him with a club legend in Dean Pay, who was stuck with a playing roster that his predecessor had signed up long term and who had also disposed of good clubmen in great Bulldogs tradition like Moses Mbai and Josh Reynolds. And with no money to move because Hasler had overpaid for players such as Kieran Foran and Aaron Woods. The money problem eventually cost him Woods, as well as the Morris Twins and several other players. Over his three years in charge, the Bulldogs won just 19 of 57 games, with the majority of those games backs to the Walls wings to avoid the wooden spoon in both 2018 and 2019. However, with no success, no ability to change his roster, and a lack of support for his position, he quit before the boom could fall. And now the Bulldog situation, solution sorry, is to bring in a coach who has already had problems with coaching a club with tribal elements. Not only that, they appear to have promised a $3 million cheque for him to chase players for the next season. So if this is the case, why wasn't this afforded to Dean Pay? Why is it good enough to give a prospective new coach the chance to splash some money around, but give their beleaguered former coach saddled with the previous player's previous coaches play a roster. It seems to be an unfair treatment for a former favoured son of the club. Is Barrett the answer? Buggered if I know. 
On the surface, it always felt to me that Barrett's best chance of success as a coach would have been at his own former club, the Dragons. How ironic. If Trent is indeed named as new Bulldogs coach, he and the club will both hope that he has learned the lessons of his first stint as head coach and will use that to his advantage. The third basket case club of the week is, of course, the Brisbane Broncos. And as with most things to do with the Broncos, it can be traced back in one shape or form to Wayne Bennett. Bennett was the inaugural coach of the Broncos back in 1988 and stayed for 21 years. The success the club had was not only through his coaching, but the ability to ensnare the absolute best talent from the greater Brisbane area, largely untouched as their monopoly entailed. As this began to dissipate, with the advent of Melbourne in particular able to draw players because of their connection with Queensland, Bennett was enticed to the Dragons, who had a squad ready to win, and then he won. Strangely enough, he then abandoned them less than 12 months later, something from which the club has yet to recover from. Paul McGregor take note. He then went to Newcastle and took them to a preliminary final, but again, 12 months later, abandoned that team to return to Brisbane as the, as the prodigal son to take them on board to success again. He got them to a grand final. But then, now we were, 18 months later, abandoned them again. Anthony Seabold had done a great job with the South Sydney Rabbitohs, rebuilding them from the premiership winning team to a squad that looked as though they could challenge once again. It all seemed set up whereas at Brisbane, they had inherent problems with their player list. The Bennett's second coming had also not produced the success the club had expected, and no doubt had brought extra infractions. Everything then was set up for Seabold to to come to Brisbane on a multi-year deal and resurrect the Broncos like he had been in the process of doing with the Rabbitohs. South in return sounded out Bennett, and seeing another opportunity with a ready-made list, he swooped. He got everything he wanted from an early transition between the clubs. Seabold arrived and found a club in less good shape than he had been led to believe. The Broncos have never taken kindly to a coach whose name didn't start with Wayne or end with Bennett. Ivan Henjak lasted barely two seasons. His replacement, Anthony Griffin, had four drama-filled seasons before Bennett returned in a blaze of glory, only to run again when the milk began to turn sour. At his press conference on Friday, after yet another heavy defeat, Seabold said he had only 21 fit players to fill 17 places. There's no doubt he needs to make changes to his starting team, but if you don't have the cattle, it's like moving chairs around on the Titanic. There's some metaphors for you. As a coach, you would think he deserves the chance to make the changes necessary for success and the time for that to happen. However, it doesn't always work that way. Trent Barrett fell out at Manly and Dean Pay fell out at Canterbury trying to do exactly what Seabold is trying to do. Oh, how all three would love to have had the number of chances and the time that Paul McGregor has had to try and bring success to the Dragons. So Seabold is fighting injuries 
and a player base unable to cope with the changes he's tried to institute, all while copying floggings that Broncos supporters have never had to experience. And now, on the horizon, Paul Green has left the Cowboys. An interesting development, given that Brisbane chased him a couple of years ago as a coaching option. Curiouser and curiouser. Alrighty, that's about it for me for my uh, return to the podcasting world. Uh, short and sweet as such. I don't even know how long it goes for, but it's certainly not a 50-minute one that I did on Australia's World Cup chances about two years ago that I don't think anyone except myself and my son actually listened to. If you enjoy it, I'm pleased. I hope you'll uh, check out whatever else I end up doing from this point on. Uh, if you didn't, maybe give me another crack. Or, you know what, just ignore it all completely. Anyway, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time, or hear from you next time, on Thoughts from the Metal Cabin. Cheerio!